Tabletops will start after the following messages. Are you looking for something comfortable to wear and keep your brain warm while playing tabletop games? Daily Dose of Yarn makes handmade, customized beanies for all of your style and comfort needs. She can even help you with a custom beanie to represent your favorite character. Check out Daily Dose of Yarn on Instagram and Etsy to order your new favorite beanie today. Amidst the wreckage and recovery from war, a new secret war begins in the alleys, docks, gambling pits, and sewers of Aratai. A war of assassins, smugglers, crime lords for the underbelly of the city. Caught in this struggle, a bounty hunter and a thief for hire find themselves entrusted with the protection and life of a very special child. This is a story from the shadows of Aratai. Premieres November 12th on Dice Legends. Hi, excursionist. I'm Nari. Why don't you join me at the Into the Night Anthology podcast? Bring a friend along when you find us on your favorite podcast directory. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Into the Night Pod so you never miss an episode. Remember, you should never wander these twisted paths alone. In fact, look, the first path is just ahead. Are you ready? Follow me. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Tabletopped. Happy Halloween, everybody, one and all. I hope you're having an awesome, spooky day. And we have a little bit of a surprise for you. Today, we have our guest interview with Dr. Emily Zarka. You're going to hear all about her in a second. But first, I want to say thank you all for listening to our month of bonus episodes. I really hope you enjoyed them. If you did, if you want to go down to the place where you review these episodes and hit the like button, five stars, write a quick review, it really helps the show. If you already have done that, if you would share the show with a friend, it also really helps us get the show out there so that we can expand this community. everyone, welcome back to Tabletop. I'm so excited to tell you about today's Halloween guest. Dr. Emily Zarka is here with me today. You may know her as the writer and host of Monstrum, the award-winning online series with PBS's Story Channel. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's so, so cool. And it looks at uh, complex histories and motivations behind some of the world's best monsters, or at least the most famous ones. And she also wrote and hosted the award-winning one-hour documentary for PBS called Exhumed, A History of Zombies, which is also incredible. You should check that one out too. And when she's not examining monster myths and making incredible content, she teaches at Arizona State University. We're so, so lucky to have her on today. Emily Zarka, welcome to Tabletop. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? 
I'm good. Thank you again for coming on to Tabletopped. We're such a big fan of Monstrum and your other work here. And uh, I guess the first thing I want to say is like, how how does one sort of get into the monster business? I mean, you have sort of built a, a career off of being a monster expert, and you're accomplished in this by making, you know, documentaries and doing the show Monstrum on PBS and all the other stuff that you've been working on, all kind of centers around this deep knowledge of monsters. Like, how did you go about making that into what it is now, like this career that you have? I like to say it's being really lucky and really stubborn. Um, the That's the short answer, but no, I've been a lifelong fan of horror and didn't really think it was something I could make a career out of until some wonderful professors in my undergraduate career showed me that, yes, horror is something that's very much worthy to pursue. And I've always been obsessed with the undead. So I started my dissertation looking at representations of undead monsters uh, before 1850. And as I was doing that and really engaging in my research, I had to keep going further and further back into folklore history and more broad cultural myths and monster creation in general. And in doing so, I realized what I had kind of always inherently known somewhere deep in my soul was that every culture creates monsters and that I knew there had to be a reason or reasons why we felt the need that to make that such a core feature of our humanity. So I started calling myself a monster expert before I earned the title. And fortunately, I think I've earned it at this point, and here we are. That's awesome. Well, as a fan, I was so excited to have you on because as a writer, I've always been drawn to horror and in games and other fiction. I've always felt like horror was something that never failed to get people invested and to get them to lean in. So what do you think it is about us as humans that makes us mm -hmm. take an already pretty scary world and fill it with more fictional things that scare mm -hmm. us? Honestly, I think that's where the answer lies. I think that sometimes those larger scary moments and the, rear, the real terrors that exist in our world are sometimes too much for us to deal with. Um, and I mean that both culturally, socially, and personally, that there are some theories in psychology and philosophy that encountering the sublime or encountering true terror too directly is too overwhelming for the human body or the human mind to really process the information in ways that could be considered productive, at least for most people. So I think that the monster creation allows us to address those fears and look at the real horrors of the world using metaphor, using narrative to construct conversations more easily, or at least making analogous forms and phys literally physical bodies and entities that we can project our passions, our fears, our cultures, our histories onto, and talk about them in a way that allows us to form connections with one another without necessarily getting into maybe the nitty gritty of some of the complexities as abruptly. So I like to say that monsters are not only integral to humanity, but they unite us. That we are able to have really serious conversations if we engage in this storytelling practice that allows for that sort of film between the real and the unreal. Yeah, no, that, that makes so much sense. It's sort of like um, when you fear something, you want to define it in some way. You want to put it in a 
in some way that you can understand it, even if it's a fictionalized version. Like uh, if you're really scared of like the dark woods, then you start mm-hmm. and people going missing in the dark woods and yeah. you start making monsters to to explain that, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's the monsters are a lens that we can view the world um, maybe a little more easily. And that's not to say, of course, that monster creation doesn't come from real trauma or terror, but that for a lot of people, and if we think about this in terms of like telling scary stories to children, it's really frightening and potentially damaging to a child to tell them like you could be kidnapped and abducted at any moment, like be aware of your surroundings. But if we present some kind of boogeyman figure And they're like, oh, I know that I shouldn't go out at night by myself or I shouldn't talk to strangers for these reasons using that fictional creature. I think that that makes it easier to process. Yeah, I think that that's totally right. And like, I guess I never really thought about it exactly in that way of um, that. It kind of also explains what kind of stories that we tell, like if uh, Mm -hmm. whatever is around you and in your culture and in your um, in your immediate vicinity that you need to kind of educate people on, or you need to kind of, uh, like you said, kind of tell somebody in a way that's not going to damage them, (laughs) but also kind of, you know, get it through their head, like, don't do this or do do this or, you know, whatever it is, then we can create these sort of um, explainers in the form of monsters that will allow us to tell these stories and to learn these lessons without having to confront harsher truths or um, interact with a world that might be a in a traumatic or dangerous way. Exactly. And there are true dangers in the woods, in the ocean, in our neighborhoods, right? But, and we need to be aware of those dangers, of course. But I think just like you're saying, the having this metaphor, this like spectral figure in our head is terrifying, but productive. And I'm glad you brought that up because some people think that monster theory is all about policing culture, that it's about identifying the good and the bad. And that's absolutely part of it, but it's also about education and instruction. So there are real, real practical lessons that come from monsters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about the creation of new monsters? Because like George Romero, um, when he made his uh, zombies, he sort of took something that had already existed in, in previous uh, cultures and things like that and he changed it to make kind of a, a new monster with new rules mm-hmm. and abilities and all that kind of stuff and desires and um, what it kind of does mm-hmm. within the fiction so can you talk a little bit about the process of like how one creates a new monster mm-hmm. I respect that process wholeheartedly as long as it's coming from appreciation not appropriation and I think again that zombies are like you said a fascinating example that the Haitian voodoo conception of the zombie ZOMBI goes back hundreds of years, if not thousands, and has some really deeply rooted spiritual practices associated with it and cannot be separated from slavery. Like that's just undeniable facts. So when someone like Romero comes along, and of course, I'm sure you've heard that he never called his ghouls, he called them ghouls, he never called his undead being zombies. But I like to think, and I'd have to ask someone like David Krause, who's gone through all of Romero's documents and is far more of an expert than I am on Romero, but I think that Romero was conscientious enough that even if he didn't understand the full zombie tradition and the complexities going on there with race and slavery, I think that he was smart enough to recognize that what he was doing was different. And again, I think that the undead are present in so many different ways in our culture. And 
someone like Romero is analogous in my mind to someone like Bram Stoker, that they're taking these older traditions, these like pieces of folklore, putting them into existing narratives and tensions that are existing in their pre in their actual living time period and making something new from them. So Romero wasn't the first person to come up with the zombie or the ghoul or the revenant, but he was the first one to merge them together in all these different features in a way that really spoke to people at that moment of time. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. I actually never really thought of um, the, the idea that zombies originally came from the sort of um, enslavement of um, people's from other cultures mm-hmm. because, I mean, it just makes so much sense, right? This, like, sort of the, the extraction of the humanity and the free will from this human form. It's very, very cool. And then I think, like, uh, Romero, when he kind of took those ideas, he was still commenting upon something kind of similar, which is the way that race relations were in America and sort of um, commenting upon the actual social structures that we had here. And so it, it just makes me sort of um, really realize how closely monsters are tied into like the human societal experience that we take these things that we have so much uh, so much of a hard time um, talking about or thinking about and it puts it in this like really kind of metaphorical thematic uh, you know framework that we can process these things. Well and I think part of that is because a lot of the issues that monsters deal with are both different and the same right? I mean there are some common conditions and general structures of tension that we come across as humans. And some of those, of course, if you want to argue, go back to ancient, you know, human days of trying to survive in a scary world, which we're still trying to do, right? And some of that more comes from cultural and social institutions. But the fact is, we're still creating those institutions. We're still dealing with those fears. So in my mind, of course, you're never going to have a world where there's no monsters, because there's never going to be a world where those tensions don't exist. I think, the, yeah, no, I mean, the idea that we, um, that the tensions in our society are going to perpetuate mm-hmm. monsters in our fiction and the, the, the things that we're dealing with uh, that we kind of translate, I think mm-hmm. is so resonant. And also, <laughs> I think that it, it's really interesting to apply that to what kind of horror movies and horror content that we're getting these days because you really don't see sort of, you know, the, the old school creature features anymore. You see sort of um, uh, horror movies are much more about humans, like evil humans, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, slashers and things like that where... Uh, humanity, I think, might be putting itself in yeah. the, the role of villains because it, it has gone through the point where they don't understand what is happening in the world, but then start to kind of turn inwards and say, oh, the, the real danger to us are ourselves. And so we start to reflect that in our horror fiction. Do you think that that's, do you agree with that? or? I think that's part of it, but I also think that some of the best horror today, and I firmly believe this in horror in general, comes from voices that have been traditionally marginalized in society. So when I hear you say like, oh, there are no real creature features, I'm like, but there are, they're just not coming from Hollywood. Um, So I'm thinking of more independent filmmakers, more things from other countries and other languages. And honestly, even platforms like Reddit or TikTok or social media are crafting these really weird and bizarre creatures. And I think that what we're seeing is, in my opinion, less of less maybe of a devolvement of monster creation and only looking at humanoid and more of a different kind of storytelling that I like 
call digital folklore, where beforehand folklore for me is something that has to be carried on through generations and told and retold, but with that same kind of narrative thread that goes through it. And that used to happen primarily orally. And then we had a period of history where people started writing those stories down because we got into spooky stuff. And I think now there's more people who are like, yes, I'm into this thing. Let's talk about it. And digital technology allows us to talk to people across the globe in instantaneous time. And as a scholar of monsters, it's fascinating to be able to go onto like creepypasta or even Twitter and literally see the exact timestamp when something is created. Because we can't say that about the undead. We can't say that about the zombie or the vampire or even something like the unicorn or the kraken. We don't have those exact moments, but we do now. And so I think that's both exciting and terrifying. But I do agree with you that a lot of the humanoid monsters we see and maybe this is part of the appeal actually of both the zombie and the vampire and even some of things like the fey folk and even someone like slender man right or siren head that do kind of look vaguely humanoid because like you said we are recognizing more and more i guess abruptly that yeah we are the ones who are causing all of this chaos the human behind the monster has always been the most fascinating point to me. And I think monsters have done that from the very, very beginning is almost every single time. It's how the humans respond to the threat that the true horror lies within that. Now, I don't want to pivot too far from what we're talking about, but I do want to kind of bring it specifically to uh, interactive fiction and like games. Um, so a lot of our audience uh, play a lot of TTRPGs like D&D mm-hmm. and some other things like that. And one of the things is... Um, homebrewing monsters and like creating your own monsters for the fiction that you're trying to tell your group. So uh, I want to pick your brain a little bit about how um, folks, Mm -hmm. like if you were to advise somebody about how they could make uh, a monster um, while still sort of being respectful, because a lot of the the stuff in the the monster manual in D&D is kind of full of appropriative um, kind of... uh, (laughs) ideas of what these monsters are like the rakshasa we did an episode mm-hmm. about it recently it's just fully taken from mm-hmm. indian mythology and there's some like less uh less nice portrayals i guess of some other types of things like the the jewish golem is like the inspiration for some golems in D and things like that so in order to sort of dodge out of the way of appropriating things in a way that isn't um isn't good how would you suggest someone to uh take uh, something that they want to create and do it in a, a way that they can create a fully new monster, um, but without kind of, you know, falling into that sort of appropriative uh, creation method. Well, I wouldn't be a professor of literature if I didn't say, like, do your research. I think that I at least get so excited when I see any kind of fiction that involves monsters or folklore in any capacity if there's even a little bit of accuracy to the original creature, even if I'm not part of that culture myself, I get so excited because someone did their research. So for example, the dragons in Shang-Chi, the Disney movie, I was losing my mind because the dragons are accurate to Chinese mythology and folklore. And then even like little Morris, he's a Hundun, which is like this incredibly important malevolent 
figure in Chinese lore, and they don't say that explicitly in the movie, but for someone who recognizes it, I was automatically cheering because I was like, yes, someone did their research. So I would say do a lot of reading. And people think like, oh, these things are behind paywalls or I don't want to be reading, you know, text from a couple hundred years ago, which fair, valid points. But there are archives and libraries and even like folklore museums out there who are trying to make this content accessible to people. So use the great resources of the internet to do that. So I say first do your research. And then secondly, I think grounding any of your fiction in fact in some capacity is also really important. So not, again, just things that existed in the past, but yeah, if you want to create, so I'm in Arizona, I'm in the desert. If I wanted to create an Arizona-based monster, I would think about the natural habitat around me, like what animals exist, what plants exist, what colors, and try to construct a world that makes sense wherever I want to set it and use history, use science, use literally the environment around you to help craft that creature because then it gives other people something to relate to. And I think you need to relate to the monster in some capacity to truly make it iconic rather than fleeting. Yeah, I think that you're totally right. Um, I think that I've always had sort of this little theory about um, kind of horror creation that you have to to take something recognizable and like kind of roll it in so that you're close enough to to the thing that you can kind of relate to it in a way that makes it real. Um, and I, I was watching uh, your Monstrum episode recently on Siren Head. Yay! Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic episode because I think that the the sort of group creation of um, these myths is like one of the cool things of our day, um, and. So do you know of um, Candle Cove? Oh, I'm on Creepypasta and Reddit No Sleep like every night. So I totally am a fan. Yeah. So I, so uh, the creator of Candle Cove, has, uh, Chris Straub, he has like a, a really interesting way of going about horror that I 100% subscribe to, which is um, that the thing that is truly scary is not somebody with a knife that like runs mm-hmm. after you, uh, just like a person, because then you understand them like you're fearing physical harm and that is scary mm-hmm. but ultimately you are relating to it there are rules that uh, affect it right and so his uh kind of idea mm-hmm. is that you take something that is completely foreign so you have like mm-hmm. a ghost or something that you cannot communicate with maybe you don't even see it maybe it's uh visible but you're aware of its existence but it is completely foreign to you and that the true horror in that comes from the the lack of knowledge like the the unrelatability of this thing so like when i make monsters i always make them so foreign that um they they cannot be they don't have rules they aren't or maybe they have rules but they aren't known to people it's not like it's something you can just kill and move on or whatever uh it's something that there are specific things that maybe you don't understand why it works but that is what how this like monster functions i love that and i think that's a great like theory and way to approach it i know that on monstrum we just did a killer plants or monster plants episode and as i was researching that i thought more and more, I mean, yeah, carnivorous plants exist in the world, but they're not eating people. So why did we make these stories where they're not just eating people, but like preying and hunting on people? And I think it comes down to that unrelatability that we literally cannot conceptualize fully that a tree could be a conscious entity that has 
thought and desires and potentially evil desires. Um, so yeah, applying that to ghosts, I think also a lot of fear of ghosts comes from the inexplicability and the undead of death. Like we don't know what happens after death. There are of course millions of theories, but there's no answer. And so, yeah, when we can't rationalize something completely, we're going to be scared of it. And we have a monster that comes from that. Yeah, like like all the, the the ghosts in my worlds are always these sort of like remnants of like very intense uh, memory or emotional things that um, are replaying itself. It's sort of like in um, Blair uh, Manor, I think Bly Manor, yeah, Bly Manor, where they <laughs> sort it. of re. It, it's all about memory and somebody reliving this kind of traumatic mm-hmm. events, and they aren't really uh, conscious of what's around them. Mm-hmm. So like these ghosts don't aren't really like vicious, right? They're just you know unaware of of the the mortals around them kind of thing as they go through these memories i think that's so fascinating and again a trope that you're very much like in trend with the times because as technology and medical knowledge increases we're living longer so we've actually seen in the last five years even strings of movies about usually older people who are potentially possessed or becoming monsters in some capacity and maybe it's supernatural maybe it's not maybe it's dementia maybe it's memory loss but again that's so smart to me because it's coming from a real fear that some people maybe want to talk about and some people don't so we don't want to think about you know putting our loved ones maybe in some kind of care facility and have them lose their memory so maybe it's easier to imagine that they're becoming possessed by a demonic entity and that allows us to explain changes in behavior Amazing. Yeah. So, so I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, format as well. Um, so TTRPGs are interactive fiction. We, we actually are going to be having a guest on, uh, Nat Mesnard, uh, who is also a professor and uh, teaches interactive uh, fiction writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be next week, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking about how the actual format of storytelling uh, really changes how monsters and how horror and how, you know, threats in games, overcoming obstacles, It kind of changes how all of that functions because you actually have agency within the game. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. Like, uh, how some of, in your experience, what are some of the best ways you've seen that sort of thing done? So like in an interactive fiction way where uh, the player has agency but also Mm. is slightly removed from things. um, How how are you able to sort of hook them in with like a really um, interesting story and able to draw them into this type of uh, storytelling? Ooh, that's such a, I have to think about that. I'm a huge fan of like super massive games and like the dark pictures anthology. So I'm just thinking of the butterfly effect, you know, where you make a decision, then you can't turn away from it, I think is a really interesting, I guess, mode of storytelling where it forces you to make that quick time decision, literally, and then you kind of are stuck with it, which is so realistic to real life. So I think that I kind of like that approach. I like this idea that, Even if it's a tabletop RPG or if it's, I guess, going back to those super old school, like what, from the 50s and the 60s, where it was um, like murder mysteries or choose your own adventure books and you'd like flip to the next chapter. I like that idea that you're forced to make a decision and then stick with it, despite the consequences unintended. And especially when you're playing with other people or storytelling with others and they build upon those decisions and you go back and you're like, damn, I wish I had done X, Y, or Z differently, Uh, which we're all going to feel that way. But I think that there's something so powerful in allowing that 
moment to be like, eh, well, it is what it is. Like, let's just keep storytelling. I, I like that a lot. So one thing that I uh, that I sort of think about when it comes to the interactive fiction monsters and storytelling too, to like really get the horror vibe is that you can't let the players fight the, the monsters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like um, like the Amnesia games, you have um, uh, a lot of games where people, if it, it's, it's about hiding or running away, like Resi- Resident Evil, the new ones and uh, things like that, where the monsters are actually scary because you can't actually defeat them. You have yeah. to run away. And so it's all about trying to like run away from them or avoid yeah. them yes. rather than to take them <laughs> head on. Um, do you have any sort of suggestions around sort of uh, making monsters that um, the <laughs> players, I guess, in your fiction, when you're, you're interacting with uh, the, the players in whatever context, that they're not just going to, you know, take out their sword and like go after it. And it beca- so it becomes less of an action game and more of like a, a scary sort of monstrous encounter. Honestly, I think it's less about the monster and more about the person encountering the monster and how you approach the thing. And we see this in some different kinds of storytelling and some like monster myths I can think of or even something like the Leshy or forest deity tropes where they're not bad or good. But it's like how you treat the forest or how you treat the monster that determines how they treat you. Um, I think that's really powerful because that puts agency in both the monster and also in the individual and how you respond to it. So I think a really interesting way of thinking about that concept is through the idea maybe of like the final girl in horror, right? That this idea that, which of course is exploited in a lot of ways, but I don't think, I'm trying to think of, I don't think that horror in terms of final girls is necessarily anti-feminist or anti-women. It very much can be. But for me, horror that deals with that kind of agency of the survivor um, is about confronting our preconceived notions about either how we're going to respond to something or how we think we should respond. And usually it's when someone responds in a way that's non-traditional or unexpected that they're able to survive. If that's through killing the monster or befriending the monster or what have you, it's about characters that are multifaceted and that refuse to adhere to those prescribed notions of how bodies or people or entities are supposed to look or act. And I think that's actually the fear of those beings looking or acting in ways that are different from expectation that makes them both heroic and monstrous. And that's that really fine line, I think, that maybe the difference in the monster's toes between. You just sort of inspired uh, a memory <laughs> in me of when I was a kid. I watched this, um, it was like on HBO or something, and it was about, uh, the, it was a horror movie, and it was this this sort of reporter mm-hmm. that was reporting on a guy who was the killer and had like, it, it was all the tropes. Like he was the monster, sort of like Jason mm-hmm. Voorhees type of guy, and there was like a final girl, and everything was kind of pre-described. And the the um, uh, the reporter was kind of reporting on him uh, as sort of like a, a interest story. I, I have no idea what it. Oh God, I, I don't know what it's called. Oh my God, is that um Leslie Vernon? The um. Uh... I feel like I know what you're talking about. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure. I don't really remember the name, but it was, yeah, it was, I thought it was always so interesting because it portrays this serial killer guy as like, 
like this really nice person. He has like a really wonderful family. Like his mentor who's mm-hmm. like trained him is like this old serial killer or something. But like the reporter doesn't really believe him because he's, you know, uh, just like a really nice guy. And um, she's sort of reporting on how he kind of, it kind of seems like he's just like fallen in love with this final girl who is all of these specific things. And there's like traits that he yeah. has to follow. It's like this really interesting thing of like playing with the form of the expectations of the format, which I thought was so, so cool. Um, and it turns out that the the reporter is the final girl and that like when it starts happening, like when the actual horror movie kicks off, like it, uh, she slowly realizes that he's been sort of like in love with her and that she is the person that he's been kind of grooming into this final girl sort of stereotype. And she goes through the horror movie and kind of hits all of the beats that he kind of described, uh, to her in his plan. It's like, this really, really cool movie. I really liked it. (laughs) I'm almost positive. You're talking about behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. Yes, it is good. So again, that's such a great example of how monster storytelling both can use existing tropes and defy them at the same time. And of course, you have things going on with genre and cinematography there too, but those are the kinds of stories that I really love. Again, when you get playful with expectation um, and make it something new, I think that's great reference. <laughs> Huge fan. <laughs> And, and yeah, I, I think that uh, it's like such a cool, interesting idea of um, that these things uh, are sort of tropes that even like the monsters have sort of like an, an idea of what the tropes are and kind of either can lean into them or not sort of like a nature versus mm. nurture kind of thing. <laughs> it's expectations versus reality, I guess. It's kind of like a retelling of Shelley's Frankenstein, right? I mean, this idea that The creation is not the true monster, it's the creator. But then what happens when someone or something grows up in an environment that paints them in a certain way? Maybe not as a serial killer, right? Leslie Vernon, he's like, might as well lean into it. But I think that that is one of the reasons that stories and characters like Frankenstein and his creation um, or Stoker and even Dracula endure is because, again, it's blurring that line between hero and monster in lots of different ways. Yeah, and I, I think it also, um, it's, it's it talks about, like we were talking about earlier, the societal effects it's, upon the fiction that we tell because it's sort of like the pressures that we all face and like the things that we face in our world and yeah. that is things we are afraid of or things that we feel like we have to emulate. Um, and I, I know this is, is kind of like a little bit of a broad question, but what kind of tropes in, um, are you seeing mm-hmm. right now? Like, are you seeing any like uh, large trends with um, with monsters? And I know that this was a little bit of a broad question. So if it is, just let me know. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's a great question. I think that trends maybe I've seen and can expect more of, I think we're already starting to see this, is a revival of vampires again. Um, moving away from like Twilight sparkly ones and don't even get me started on, don't even get me started on hot vampires and like Anne Rice, Um, but scary vampires. And I think that that comes a lot from emphasis on, again, my personal opinion, um, upper classes of society preying on the masses. I think we see a lot of tension in that in today's world, obviously. Uh, one of the hosts, Franco, on the, the podcast, he he's a writer and he um, mm-hmm. is creating a kind of a vampire uh, novel right now and it is all about like landlords <laughs> essentially so it's sort of like a class commentary thing um, with that yes which is a great point because we've been seeing especially from 
um, non-Hollywood studios, we've been seeing a lot of landowner or renter tension in horror movies. And, you know, something's in the walls and it's really never about the thing in the walls. Um, and I think that combines with ghost narratives. And I think a lot of we're going to see more and more in that. We already have. And some of it is absolutely brilliant. Um, I believe, I don't know, I think it's the 2019, like, La Llorona, not the curse of La Llorona. The good La Llorona movie does this extremely well. Again, because it's honoring the tradition that La Llorona comes from. But the idea that ghosts are about the past that linger because of something we've done and that they're trying to hurt us, usually, usually to teach us something. And I think that as we move increasingly quickly towards things that we either can't control or that we never thought were possible, there's that fear of, again, looking back retroactively and being like, ooh, we probably shouldn't have done that. So ghosts kind of toe the line, I guess, between past, present, and future, um, maybe in their ability to talk to us about that concept. Yeah, actually, I really recently watched this video essay about Bly Manor and how it is all about memory and like generational trauma kind of coming through and how we can't really feel like we can't escape our past. Uh, and I think that that is like something that really fits in there, too, of this sort of like generational um, issues that are coming up uh, in a whole bunch of different ways in our, our current culture. Uh, yes, I think that's a definitely a broad understatement. And I also think that maybe that's where another trend I've seen is eco horror um, and also folk horror, which I'm doing air quotes right now. I know you all can't see me. Because <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, finger quotes are widely used on tabletop. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> It's a debated term, and even I don't have a steady definition of it, but I think we're seeing this in an increase in forest and nature-based creatures, but also in cult movies, specifically movies that are based in pagan traditions, which, again, are not inherently evil. Like Midsummer. Yes, like Midsummer, Or um, oh, there's the one where the four guys are on the hike, and there's so many. I can't think of the names off the top of my head right now, but... And you could argue that that's about, A, a fear of what we're doing to the environment and also a fear of non-Abrahamic uh, religions, right? That like, oh, people are moving away from that and so we're going to demonize it by making them all seem like they're sacrificial cults. Uh, so I think those would probably be the big trends that I've seen recently. And again, the best movies, the ones I'm most inspired by, are usually coming from the less globally recognized traditions of ghosts of forest creatures of the undead what have you yeah i actually find that foreign horror films are just so fascinating because uh with western films being a westerner uh i sort of can hit the tropes mm -hmm. like i know the sort of general story structure but when you explore into other culture storytelling methods you find like oh there's such a different structure and like what they tend to focus on is so different and what mm -hmm. actually yes. makes people scared in those movies is different as well I, I think it's so fascinating like i feel like i'm really lucky that i got really into like japanese and asian storytelling when it comes to horror because they have like a really sort of mental sort of like psychology-based uh, psychology horror <laughs> that kind of goes into a lot of their their stuff. But then when you look at some of their monsters, they're very nature-based, like the yokai. Are, mm -hmm. Yeah, the yokai are huge. Yeah. <laughs> can you talk a little bit for our folks that really love these kind of 
um, different monsters mm-hmm. or traditions from other places mm-hmm. and want to create something like that, or perhaps they even want to use parts of it to, or like um, trends from other storytelling traditions to create a monster that they can use in their fiction. Yeah, and I'm hesitant to give a general definition of like Western versus everything else because I think there's so many aspects in that. Yeah, it's really complicated. <laughs> Yes, caveat, it's very complicated. But I think that in general, when we picture even something like the zombie, which is has no original basis in any kind of white culture, um, we have to really consider the role that the media play and have played in creation of these, for lack of a better way of putting it, stereotypes or tropes of, again, characters and monster ideas that have existed across the globe for thousands of years. So like the zombie, like the vampire, even like Frankenstein's creature, which again is Western-based, but when I say Frankenstein, a lot of people picture Boris Karloff's character, not the scientist behind that creation. Um, So I think that I guess my best advice would be to move away from what you've maybe seen in movies, (laughs) or at least in Hollywood-produced movies or even big-budget studio movies from anywhere across the globe, and focus more on what's happening in smaller communities, in independent creators, in film festivals, in horror contests. Um, But I also think that there is a lot of potential on places like Twitter and even Reddit, and not that those can't be cesspools of (laughs) digital humanity in a lot of ways, but they can also be productive, like make connections with other people who are smart and into the same sort of things and learn from their experiences and their cultures. And again, do your research, come from a place of appreciation. Um, But if I had to like point anyone to, there's, there's just so many good ones, to be honest. Yeah, the yokai I think are fascinating because one thing I think that Japanese folklore does really well is making even mundane objects really scary or bizarre, something like an umbrella. Um, And again, you have to, I think, understand why they're doing that to really understand why the monster is scary, which again, requires work. So I think that's the biggest thing is that you can't expect to come up with a monster and have it be significant and complex and multifaceted and original without actually working on it and thinking past the obvious I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that that is, um, that's right, that it, it just takes a lot of work. Um, but for folks, since you are a university professor, you have a lot of experience in this kind of research. Can you tell some uh, of your kind of tips and tricks? How, how best can you research um, these sort of traditions and cultures and monsters and all that kind of stuff so that you can bring in some of these uh, monsters respectfully or to create, like you said, with like a, a knowledge-based approach? Do you have any resource suggestions? Um, probably, obviously. Don't just go to Wikipedia and assume that you're going to learn the true source to everything. If you have to do that, at least go to the bibliography at the bottom and try to pull those sources and see what happens. Um, But no, and more seriously, I think that it's in doing good research and again, creating really good monsters, you have to do the work and do a little bit of digging. So what that at least looks like to me in questions that I ask myself in my own research are, am I trying to pull from sources that are some of the original creators and are they telling these stories in their own words? 
Am I honoring the story's evolution? Am I looking at a diverse variety of sources? And then I think about how can I take those narratives and stories and honor them, but maybe make them more relevant or additionally relevant to a larger audience today. Um, so definitely look for diversity, look for breadth. Don't just go to one place or one author, even if you really like them, and don't even go to one story, right? I mean, even if it's something like The Leshy, it's okay, try to get as much as you can. And I, for me, that means not just looking at fiction, but looking outside of fiction as well. Okay, I'm gonna end with maybe the hardest question. I'm kind of putting you on the spot. But as a monster expert, what is your favorite monster? Maybe it could it could even just be for right now, like what one has been Ooh, on your brain. But so what's your favorite monster? I mean, the undead in any capacity, any kind of reanimated corpse has a very, very dear place in my heart. Um, so I think if I had to say anything, it would be the undead. Um, and that brings me into so many delightful creatures like zombies and the Greek Rikolakas and the Filipino Mananongal and just all these bizarre bodies that refuse to stay repressed by death. I think those would have to be my favorite. Dr. Emily Zarka, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank we, you so Like much. I said at the top, we really love your work. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's been so great to pick your brain about monsters <laughs> and how to create them and how to use them in fiction. Uh, what are you working on right now? Where can people find you? What What's sort of uh, the next thing for Dr. Emily Zarka? Of course. So you can find Monstrum, which is my show that looks at human history as monster history on the PBS YouTube story channel or on pbs.org. And if you want to know what I'm doing in my day-to-day -day and other projects I'm working on, you can follow me on Twitter at Zarka Emily or on Instagram at Dr. Emily Zarka. Thanks so much again for coming on, uh, Emily. Thank you for uh, gracing Tabletop with your vast knowledge and uh, happy Halloween. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Emily Zarka for coming on the pod today. Uh, it was just such a pleasure to have her on to talk about her deep knowledge of monsters on this spooky Halloween day. If you would like more guests like Emily, let us know. Head to tabletoppod.com and use the contact box to tell us what you want to hear from the show. Or if you have something you want to say to us but don't want to go on our website for whatever reason, I respect that. You can also find us on Twitter at Tabletops. Our DMs are open if you want to contact us there. If you're interested in supporting the show, we would love, love, love if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes like five seconds and it really helps the show. You can also just throw a five-star review there or on any other podcast platforms you are using. And everyone, have a great Halloween from all of us here at Tabletop to you. Be safe out there, have an awesome costume, and just have a bunch of fun. It's the best day of the year, so enjoy it. All right, everyone, have a great time out tonight and come back next week for an amazing interview with Nat Mesnard, who will talk to us about writing interactive fiction. <laughs>